Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you open up to two books in the Bible. One is Titus. It's near the end of the New Testament. It's the last of the pastoral epistles. And the other is the book of Matthew, chapter 5. On October 31st, 1517, which was a long time ago, concerned with the abusive practices of the Catholic Church, specifically the selling of certificates to absolve people of sins and lessen their time or time of their loved ones in a place in the afterlife called purgatory, also to help fund some building programs that they had. A young German monk named Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 propositions on the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Perhaps you've heard of this young man. That list was quickly reprinted and distributed throughout Germany and Europe, and this act historically marked what was the beginning or became known as the Protestant Reformation. I don't know if you've ever read that list, but I would argue the most important proposition on that list is the first of the 95 propositions, and it reads like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers should be repentance. Now, Luther wasn't saying really anything new. The first sermon Jesus, our Lord, preached began with these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The first sermon that the apostle Peter preached ended with these words, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When he described his entire ministry, the Apostle Paul, who was leaving the Ephesian elders, seeing them for the last time, he told them this, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and I'm teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Suffice to say, at the heart of the Christian message is repentance. Repentance. Now, in the New Testament, the word for repentance is metanoia. And it has two usual senses to it. One is a change of mind, and another is regret or remorse, signifying a turn of direction from regret. Repentance not only describes a turning away from all things evil, but it also describes a return, if you will, to God and to living according to God's will and God's designs. Now, those whom God calls out of the world, those who He rescues out of the world, those whom God saves through faith in Jesus Christ, they respond by repenting. And that repentance happens in a moment, but it also happens over an entire lifetime. In many ways, it never ceases from happening. 
And just as our salvation is arguably an act of God's grace, that moment of repentance where our eyes are opened, where that heart that was stone starts beating as a heart of flesh after God, that act of salvation, moment of salvation is an act of grace, so is the ongoing process of sanctification. It is something that is also a perpetual act of God's grace. As Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. At which he later says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God starts something and he completes something in us by grace. That grace that saves us, that grace that rescues us, that grace that makes us alive is the same grace that continues to move us and change us for our entire lives. So with this idea in mind, I want to consider one of our membership commitments. Now, if you're new with us, this is not typically how we preach on a Sunday morning, we typically take books of the Bible, go verse by verse, but for a small season, we decided to take our membership covenant and break it up into its respective parts that we might explain or teach or remind ourselves, especially those who are covenant members, what it means to be a part of a local church. It's an important series in the place we find ourselves these days. So the commitment this morning, which is just one of several that's part of our membership covenant, is this statement. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldliness. We will keep in mind that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, we have a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. This is what our members commit to when they first become members, and it is what we will read at the beginning of our next members' meeting as we do every meeting. And this commitment, as with most of the promises in our membership covenant, are two things. It's both a description of who we are in Christ, and it's also a prescription. So one describes and one prescribes. One describes who we are, and one prescribes what we ought do. This accomplishes both. We are called and we do live carefully in the world because we are different than the world. Or better said, we have become different than the world. We are those who by God's grace have been called out of the kingdom of darkness, rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, and been placed into the kingdom of light. And those who believe, those who have been rescued are not the clean ones. They're not the ones that were smarter than the others and figured it out. They are not the ones that are stronger or cleaner or gooder than everybody else. It was purely by grace. So if you have the book of Titus open, I will read a couple verses from there. I'm going to be all over the place. Good luck trying to keep up. That's why we record it. Titus chapter 3 says this. In the context of Am I saved because I'm awesome? The answer is, you might be awesome, but that's not why you're saved. 
Titus 3 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. According to His own mercy. Now, we are saved by His grace. We are saved by His mercy. And yet, He doesn't take us away to be with Him. He keeps us in the world where we are. And in the world, having been saved out of the world, which is strange, we have two options about how we're going to live. They can be described many different ways, but one option is to live for the self, and one is to live for God. To live according to the world, or to live according to the Word. Like, those are the two ways. There are no other ways. Now, earlier in the same letter in Titus, if you go back to chapter 2, he says... And continues to describe something has happened. This grace has done something to us. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Might be best described as all kinds of people, all nations. And what has this grace done? Well, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." We are not just saved by grace. Grace has another impact on us. It brings salvation to us, but Paul says here it actually trains us to keep repenting, to keep turning away from ungodliness and to pursue godliness. This is what grace is doing. This grace is compelling us to do. These are the new desires that we have. We are different. That's a description and a prescription. We are different and we're called to live differently, but we don't like to. Why don't we like to? Well, truth be told, when citizens of the earth live like citizens of heaven, they will be persecuted like their king was. Now, persecution doesn't always mean death. When you hear persecution, you might think like, well, I'm not being threatened as a Christian. Persecution can present itself in all kinds of ways. Sometimes it's death, sir. Sometimes it's just a deep hatred. Sometimes it's a loud mockery. Sometimes it's a quiet exclusion. Persecution comes in many forms. It seems ironic that a peacemaker who is known as perhaps the most loving and humble man who ever lived could create so much conflict. But we shouldn't forget what Jesus himself said. 
we should actually read the Gospels pretty frequently because he said some things that are quite disturbing that I think we tend to read over. One of the things he said in the book of Matthew is, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? He tends to bring some division, it seems, amongst people, amongst families, amongst communities. See, the truth of peace with God coming through Christ alone is an exclusive claim. That creates division. Every exclusive claim creates division. Especially that one. And anyone who communicates that truth boldly, loudly, unapologetically, is going to experience the kind of rejection that God's prophets experienced when they're saying things that are exclusive and not popular. Now in truth, and I'm sure this excludes everyone who's here, but I hear about Christians who are reluctant to speak such things because they want to avoid at all costs that kind of rejection. Everyone wants to avoid rejection, right? Everyone wants to be liked. Christian or non-Christian. No one likes to be rejected. No one likes to be persecuted. For Christians, usually that means not only will we speak only things that are not exclusive, we'll be silent to those things, and usually we'll begin to deny the Lord, not with our mouths, but with our lives. Well, I didn't say I didn't believe in Jesus. No, you were silent. But how you live, it seems pretty clear you're living for yourself or the world and not necessarily for God. They'll say things like this to make it sound better. Well, I mean, I believe in Jesus and I believe it's important to live as a Christian, but I'm not a fanatic or anything. I don't want to be like religious. I'm not religious. I'm sure no one has ever said that here. We say these kinds of things because we don't want to be different. We don't want to be marginalized. We want to be rejected. We want to be liked by the world. Well, we should pay attention to what Jesus said, which he said in Luke 6, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Be careful. Just because you're liked, that isn't a good sign necessarily. Now, when you live like Christ, it will follow in some way, at some point, you will not always be liked. Now, that doesn't mean you will always be disliked either. Just as a quick side note, I'm troubled by some of the Christians who seem to like being disliked. And by that I mean this. There's a number, a growing number it seems of Christians, and I'm not naming names so you don't even know who I'm talking about, just those Christians out there, who I think foolishly baptize some of their own preferences and opinions, foolishly baptize their nonconformity, 
in the name of being disliked for Jesus. And I'll just put it this way. There's a huge difference between enduring persecution and provoking it. And I think some are in danger of unnecessarily provoking it. And when they are disliked, they say, yeah, it's because I love Jesus. I'm like, well, it might just be because you're a jerk. It might not be actually what you believe at all, but actually how you hold that belief. That's my guess. Now, that's not everybody, but that does happen. So saying like, oh, we're going to be disliked like Jesus. Well, like, not all the time about everything. You should be cautious of that as well. But when you truly are persecuted for being a Christian, it does reveal a very important truth, and that is this. This is not your home. That you are passing through. That you belong to another kingdom. Grace has changed you. Very specifically, it's made you different than the world. Grace has given you a very different identity. And what is that different identity that's different in the world? You are loved by God. You're loved by God like a father loves his children. Grace has given you not only a different identity, but a different loyalty. You are governed by that love. You are controlled, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, by that love. And grace has also given us a different destiny. You are waiting for the fullness of that love to be experienced. You're waiting for your king to return for you. Grace brings salvation, and it trains us in that salvation, and it causes us to wait for the fullness of that salvation. And and as we wait, something is produced in us Titus says is it Jesus will say it as well or Paul says it through Titus a zeal for good works I am so loved by God I I I know his love I'm controlled by his love I'm waiting for his love and therefore I love I'm zealous for good works Remember several weeks ago we talked about the shared gathering we went into Hebrews 10 about not neglecting the gathering and while that First part is important. The second part might be most important that we gather to accomplish a couple things. And do you remember what they are? To stir up one another in love. That was the first one. And good works. We gather together to remind ourselves of the love of God and to stir one another up to love one another and even, dare I say, the world. To live differently. What are these good works? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Fantastic question. And also a bad question. I would argue it's more about being who you are than what you do. But let's take a look. Now, when Jesus saves us, as I said, he doesn't take us out of the world, right? He doesn't like, you become a Christian, gone. You go be with Jesus, which would be awesome, and the world would have a lot less people in it. But he saves us and he leaves us here. That's not accidental. Jesus has a couple prayers recorded in the Bible. The longest is in John 17, and you should pay attention to what he prays in that prayer. Very specifically, 
with his disciples there about them and about any future disciples, which would be us. And he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, right? That's a, that's a declarative, indicative statement. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, separate them, distinguish them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. A lot of world in there. So, we are, as a people, by grace, have been saved out of the world, and then guess what? Sent right back into it. We have a role to play in the world. We talk about the idea of we are restored to restore, and that comes from this idea. We're saved and we're sent. We have been restored in relationship to God and one another, and actually with the world, and our role is to bring restoration. Well, how do you do that? And restoration is simply the outcome of repentance, turning back towards what God designed, living the way He built us to live in the fullness of joy. Well, how do we do that? Well, see, one of the ways we do that, the primary way we do that, is we separate ourselves in the sense of we're sanctified by the truth. We live according to the Word. We live according to how God has called us to live. See, the Word of God is not just an historical map of how we got where we're at. It is a living, breathing guide of how we are to live. Maps are great. Guides are better. And insofar as we embody the Word, we live that Word, we will bless the world. Insofar as you embody the Word, you will be a blessing to the world. Let me prove it. On his Sermon on the Mount, this is where we get to Matthew 5, Jesus uses several images to describe Christians in the world. This is what Christians are in the world. The first one he talks about is salt. He says this, you are, remember not you ought be, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how Shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, so you are, not ought be, the salt of the earth. Christians who are Christians are the salt of the earth. And by using something like salt, he's talking about this fundamental relationship with the world. We're different than the world. We are salt in the world. Having an impact, an influence on the world. And salt is, has some actually healing properties to it. Now, we probably heard the phrase, you know, don't rub salt in the wounds. And we don't do that because it hurts, right? So I kind of looked to the history of this, like where did this phrase come from? It's a, obviously a historical idiom, and scholars kind of disagree where it comes from. But they do believe it may have come from a time when salt was used as kind of an improvised antiseptic, specifically on ships. So if you got in trouble on a ship, the punishment was keel hauling, which killed you, off the plank, which killed you, or whipping. 
with a cat of nine tails, which did not kill you, but it created some gigantic wounds. And in order to prevent infection, they would often put salt on those wounds, which seems to add to the punishment, but it also preserves a little bit. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. I would argue that putting salt in your wounds is, is recommended today as much as bloodletting probably is, so probably shouldn't do that. But I bring that up to say that healing did have and has some healing properties, or salt has some healing properties to it. So as salt, we have, if you will, a preserving, which salt does, a preserving impact on the world. Insofar as we embody the Word, we do. Now, Jesus didn't say cinnamon. You are the cinnamon of the world. You are the nutmeg of the world. I'm sure there's lots of spices we like that we might pick. Like, oh, I think I'm cumin. I think that's a good one, right? Yeah, I know what cumin is. I know, I know my spices. But guess what he picked? The most common mineral. Why is that important? Every Christian is salt. Like, we kind of think like, well... I don't know if I'm salt, but like that super Christian over there, that preacher, pastor, person that's just an amazing Christian, I'm like, they're salt. No, you're salt. Everyone's salt. Man, woman, and child, mother, father, husband, wife, plumber, teacher, PUD lineman, nurse, whatever, you're salt. And salt is used to, in many ways, protect from corruption. So imagine, if you will, forgive me, vegans and vegetarians, well, not too much, but go in. Imagine the world as a ribeye steak. I know it's gross to you, but it's amazing to most people. Okay, ribeye steak. The world is this beautiful, marbled ribeye steak. Just sit in that for a moment. It's glorious. And this steak is rotten. Or at least has the potential to rot. I would argue that Jesus implies, maybe even directly says, that the world is rotting and it's becoming rank. And I would argue that Bible-believing Christians, I know I qualified that and didn't just say Christians. Bible-believing Christians will influence the world in a preserving way around them. Sometimes this is done with words as we seek to preserve God's laws. There are some laws that are aligned with God's will, and we should seek to preserve those and uphold those, to maintain and hold fast to those things that are good in the world. Preserve them. Sometimes that's going to be holding fast to truth. Sometimes that's going to be showing love in ways that are quite radical. But preserving, if you will, and as I said, insofar as we live, who the Bible says we are, Christians will have a cleansing influence on the world around them. I would argue if you remove Christians from the world, it would instantly become uglier than it is now. Contrary to what the world might think, I believe the presence of God's people 
slows the decay of this world and fights the pollution of sin. So salt is a preservative, but it's also a great flavor. Without Christianity, the world could be pretty bland. Many would argue that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are called to bring flavor as we work to align the culture with God's designs to make it more beautiful and God-glorifying. We are to enhance the flavors where we live. Salt in and of itself, its primary role in baking and cooking is to bring out the flavors that are actually already there. So we are to enhance the flavors that are there by being the salt. A sprinkling of a little more Christ-like humility. A sprinkling of some mercy, of justice, of compassion, of peace, of hope, of joy. Will that not improve and enhance your marriage and your relationships, your home, your neighborhood, your job, your community? Is your job, is your home, is your marriage greater in flavor, enhanced because of your faith? Because of your presence there? It should be. As our commitment states, though, remember the membership commitment that we're centering this on. It calls us to be careful. Be careful walking in the world. What that means is you need to add just the right amount of salt. Too little really has no effect. Too much can be quite offensive. Make things repulsive. Where do you fall in? We're to be salty, but not too salty. And Jesus asked that, question at the end, like, well, what happens if salt loses its saltiness? Is that even possible? And I would argue, it is in a sense. It's still salt. Followers of Jesus are the salt of the earth, but I would argue when we compromise our distinctiveness as people who live according to the Word, we become salt that is trampled on by foot. But what is that? Well, Scholars believe that the salt Jesus is referring to is the salt, the leftover salt that was used when they would salt the meats at the temple and they would cut the sacrifices. The salt that was on the ground would absorb the blood and it would take that blood-soaked salt and they would throw it on the roads because, well, it's not good for much anything else. You know what that blood-soaked salt on the roads did? killed everything. It was like poison. So you ask yourself, like, well, I'm going to be salt. I'm going to be a preservative in the world? Bringing more flavor? Or am I going to be poison? Because it's going to be one or the other. There are only two ways to live. Well, that's not the only image Jesus uses. In the same passage in verse 14, he uses light 
Again, not ought be. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let them see your good works that they might think you're really awesome and think and praise your name. Oh, no, that's not what it says. Do we live for ourselves or do we live for God? Even in our good works, who are they really for? Our good words, who are they for? And who do they bring glory to? Jesus tells his people that we are the light. Again, it's noteworthy. He's not talking to the wealthy, the important people. When he is speaking the sermon, he is talking to the very common, simple, even the marginalized person. You are light. And he tells you this, that you are special. You are a light in whatever context you find yourself. You are part of God's mission, even if you don't explicitly feel like one. That you are a tool for God to use to bring Him glory. And you have the power to impact the world. They're not talking about the super Christians, whoever they are. Normal flashlight Christians, right? the light. Everyone in the world knows that the world is broken. Even the world knows that. Now we disagree on why it's broken or how it's going to be fixed, but everyone knows the world is broken. It's all around us, whether you're a believer or not. Our identities are broken. How is that evidence? Like, well, the number one selling books are self-help. Pills, gurus, podcasts. People trying to figure out who they are. Our sexuality is incredibly broken by the overwhelming amount of perversion and addictions that version we celebrate and make available like crazy and the addictions we ignore and pretend they're no big deal. Our marriages are broken, evidenced by all the divorces and the cohabitations and redefinitions of what it even means. Our economy is broken, evidenced by all of the greed and unemployment and debt and poverty. And our justice is clearly broken, evidenced by all the lawsuits and perverted laws and injustices that happen across the board, the abandonment of penalties, the upholding of the strangest of laws that actually basically approve that which is criminal. Nature itself is broken, right? Things are either too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry. Some argue the world, in order to fix this, needs, they just need better education. No, we need more legislation. No, we need less legislation. No, we need better leaders, different leaders, higher paying jobs, more recycling, whatever. Like everyone has their solution. But everyone knows it's broken. And the Bible describes this brokenness as darkness. That the world is in darkness. And here, Jesus says, Christians are the light. And light exposes, right? Christians expose the truth. And why do Christians expose the truth? Because Christians know the truth. 
They're the only ones that can expose what is real, what is right, what is wrong. And what is wrong is not solved by all those things because what is wrong is mankind is estranged from their Creator. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He says, The ordinary Christian, though he may not have read any philosophy at all, knows and understands more about life than the greatest expert who is not a Christian. Did you know that? You're that smart? You see things like they are. We are the light of the world because we have a relationship with the person the Bible calls the light of the world, namely Jesus Christ. And the thing about it, like he was the light of the world. He was sinless. He did everything right, and yet he was hated as much for his godly words as he was for his godly living. We are the light by what we say, but I think even more so by how we live. We need not say anything, and your life can light a dark place. Christians are different, described as a city set on a hill, standing out from the landscape of the world, even as it is still in the world. It's not in a valley. It's not on a mountaintop covered with clouds. It's on a hill just high enough to be seen and low enough to be reached. City on a hill. And you will be seen unless you never turn on the light. Light is the kind of thing that guides us. The great football stadium verse, John 3.16, everyone should read all the way through 21. Because God did love the world that He sent His Son. But He also said this, He also gave judgment by this sending. And this is the judgment, he says. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may clearly seem that his works have been carried out in God. Who does it go back to? God. Do we live for ourselves even in our righteousness? For God? Because when we think of worldliness, we think, well, I'm not going to live like the world. I'm going to live righteously. Like, but who are you really living for? That people might praise God. People might look at your life and go like, the only thing that can explain the difference you have, the hope that you have must be God. Light certainly exposes the sin in the darkness. But guess what light also does? It lights a path out of it. There are those who will run from the light, as this text described. People will I don't, I don't want anything to do with the light. Guess what? There are those who will run toward it. Jesus says, let your light shine. Let the world see your good works. Put your gospel-centered life on display. When we live humbly, when we exercise meekness, when we show mercy, when we honor God in love, 
as He has loved us, the world will give God glory. Living out who you are in Christ is the best evangelism you have. At the same time, let's not forget we are not just houses full of light. I like to think of ourselves as kind of like lighthouses. And what that means is we can control the direction the light is aimed and the intensity of which it comes. Please don't believe the very well-intended, but I would argue unbiblical statement that says, preach the gospel and occasionally use words. I think it is important to preach the gospel with your life. But the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. We are to be a confessional people, a preaching people. I'm not just talking about the preacher. People that open their mouths and declare the very same exclusive truths that Jesus was hated for. Like what? What was he hated for? What did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim. An unpopular claim and the very truth of God and the light out of a dark world. The world must be told. I'm not sure how you live this without speaking it. The world must be told gently, lovingly, but very plainly that unless you believe Jesus is the Son of God, the one who died for your sins, the only one who can save you from the wrath of God to come, the light of the world who is the only road out of darkness, Jesus says, you'll die in your sins. The world must be told that. And Christians are the ones who know the truth and can speak enlighten the world. Well, as we close, our covenant commitment is very clear. I'll read it to you again. We will seek by divine aid. In other words, this takes the power of God in us and through us to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldliness, and keep in mind that as we've been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, we have a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Denying ungodliness, pursuing godliness. We're not committing to perfection. We know we will fail at that endeavor. We are committing to the pursuit of godliness, to be salt and to be light in a rotten and dark world world. And we depend on God's grace to do that. We cannot do that in our own power. We pray for God's grace to do that, for His strength to do that, to live and be the different people we are. And this is symbolized by our baptism. Like, what does this extend to? What is my pursuit of godliness and and denial of... What does that extend to? Like, Well, by virtue of us being baptized, by immersed, it extends to every part of your person that's under the water. That's a trick, right? It's all of it. 
We don't just segment our life and like, this is my earthly life, this is my vocational life, and then this is my Christian life. It's all of it. Every part that the water touches. There's no division between our earthly life and that which is our heavenly life. Endeavoring to live carefully in the world extends to our eyes and our minds and our mouth and our hands and our feet and our bodies and into our homes and into our jobs and into our neighborhoods and into our communities. Everywhere we go and everywhere we are. It's much more than just, I'm just not going to sin. It would be a huge mistake to understand this commitment that we make as Christian brothers and sisters in this church. It would be a mistake to understand the pursuit of godliness as, well, we're just committing to never sinning. That's what we're about. Our church is about, we just don't sin. Just plain, plain as that. So yes, we resist sin. Yes, we put to deeds or put to death the deeds of the flesh. But this, as Luther argued, is a much larger commitment to a lifetime of repentance, an acknowledgement of this. And I will only speak for myself that I am a redeemed work in progress. I have not yet arrived, but I am pursuing a life with and like Christ. And we're invited to that pursuit without fear, knowing this. God in Christ, the cross shows us God planned for our failure. Past, present, and future. He planned for our failure. He planned to show grace and mercy. He planned to forgive. He knew you were going to mess up, and so we keep pursuing without fear. And we invite the world, guess what? To repent and believe the same things. It's not an invitation to perfection, but to pursuit. It is an invitation that John gives us in his epistle, which is this. My little children, my friends, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We don't want to sin. We should call people to stop sinning. We should resist sin. We should fight sin. We ought not sin. We ought not indulge in the deeds of the flesh. Yes, that's a good thing. And John says, hey, I'm writing this to you so you'll stop sinning. But then notice what he says. But if anyone does, because you will. This is what we're committed to as God's people. If anyone does sin, guess what? We have an advocate with the Father standing there in our place advocating that He's mine, she's mine. That's covered, that's covered, that's covered. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He the Bible says, is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yes, we are to live lives pursuing godliness and denying ungodliness, but don't live your life in the world just pointing out all the ungodliness and not being the light to tell them the path out. Because that's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us and your love. Thank you for your patience with us, knowing we are redeemed works in progress, Lord.
Would you help us to be who you have made us to be? To live lives that pursue godliness and deny ungodliness. To live lives where we are salt and light, where the places we go, Lord, are better because of our presence there. They are more glorifying to you because of our presence there. I pray that will be true about people in our church and about all Christians in the world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.